The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE. It's electrified. So you can boogie, woogie, woogie into the forest. Boogie. Boogie, woogie, woogie through the mud. Or boogie, woogie, woogie to work, where you boogie, woogie, woogie down the hall to your boss's office to tell him you quit. Then you boogie, woogie, woogie to the elevator as he boogie, woogie, woogies after you, begging, please, take me with you. The electrified Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE. Learn more at Jeep.com. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. This week, Emil Hirsch opens up and my review of Star Wars Rogue One. I'm Josh Horowitz, and with me, as always, is... Sammy! We need to just work on that. It's just, <laughs> it, it should be better by this time. Sammy! Sammy Heller! <laughs> um, yes, so welcome to the show, guys. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. This week, um, as I said, Emil Hirsch is on the show. He's got a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about uh, that because it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation, to say the least, that we cover a lot in. Um, but first, I do want to talk about, because I'm a big old nerd, and by the time... What? <laughs> Not you. <laughs> and by the time you hear this, uh, the embargo, the review embargo is up. I'm not going to give you any spoilers, so don't worry. But I have seen Rogue One, a How Star Wars feel? story. Feel, How do you feel? I feel good, Sammy. Oh, I feel good. good. I was. I went in because um, I know there's obviously a tremendous amount of uh, curiosity around this. Uh, really, like, what is it? Well, I mean, it, it, it's basically a prequel to A New Hope, the original Star Wars movie, and um, prequel to the prequel. Uh, no, not the prequel to the prequel. The prequels are different. We'll get into that okay, another time. Okay, got it. Time. Sorry. Okay. So anyway, so um, it's uh, it's great. Uh, is is my short review. It's um, it feels super. Um, one of the cool things about it is that it very much feels of the world of those original trilogy movies. It's made in that spirit with those iconic stormtroopers and sound effects and look. And it, if anything, I would say it actually has more of a Star Wars, authentic Star Wars feel even than The Force Awakens, Ooh. which I, I loved Force Awakens. I have some issues with it. I certainly have some issues with this film. But my first blush review, and every, anytime I see a Star Wars movie, it takes a little time to process. Mm-hmm. I need to see it like six <laughs> times before I actually understand what I'm seeing. But I think I liked it more than The Force Awakens. What? Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's a very satisfying. I love The Force Awakens. And I think The Force Awakens has the advantage of it has maybe more uh, emotional power because you are so invested in those characters you know, like obviously Han and Leia and the specter of Luke over it. Um, and 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 this, this film doesn't have like the aspect of like the Jedi and the Force. There's none of that kind of stuff in it. And that stuff I miss, but it compensates in other areas. The action in this, I will say, is awesome. It's probably the best action in a Star Wars movie. Um, the last Force Awakens, I, I was sad in that there were no space fights. There's a ton mm. of space fights in this. So no lightsaber duels, but some space fights. You get Darth Vader back. There's a lot in here to love. How is Ben Mendelsohn? Great. <laughs> that cape, that white cape. Come on, guys. It always. Uh, the ensemble. It really is an ensemble. Felicity Jones is great. Uh, really loved. Um, uh, really, the, in the entire ensemble, I love Diego Luna. Who's the Who's the one who's going to be like? The breakout, everyone. Oh, I mean, it's weird to say that like it's a breakout for Diego because he's been around forever. But it's a, it's a good look for him. Like he's he's great in it's it. Good look for Diego. Yeah, no, it is. And um, no, they're all good. I really like them all. And there's some surprises, some surprise cameos, uh, some Easter eggs for the fans. So um, 
you know, I'm going to see it again this Friday. Any new voices for you to learn or do? Because <laughs> um, everyone knows you do a great Jar Jar. I do so. a great Jar Jar. There's no the, – I will spoil this. There's no Jar Jar Binks. Oh, so, that's what I was trying to get. A li- little bit annoyed about that. <laughs> <laughs> going to uh, write a little old letter. <laughs> yeah, dear Mr. Lucas. Not that he has anything to do with them anymore. Um, but so he yes, should know. He should know. <laughs> Just in case you didn't know, there's yeah, no Jar Jar. You should know. Um, also worth mentioning, um, I've seen a lot of stuff lately they had this uh, 20th century fox had a really cool um exclusive like event for um journalists and stuff where they showed a ton of footage of the upcoming why films. were you invited i know and then i and i snuck in um <laughs> and uh i saw a bunch of footage from alien covenant the new alien movie um a new film uh called the cure for wellness which stars dane dehan which looked really good and and i saw logan i saw, saw the first 40 minutes okay, of, the, of tell, the new wolverine movie the last us. wolverine movie supposedly okay tell us well what the first forty minutes? Literally the first forty minutes. Like this is so like, then it and no, stops and were you like breathless? Yeah, kind of because it it ends on a great note. I mean, it's you've you've seen the trailer by now, um, and you can tell that it's a different feel. This is um, definitely a hard R. Like from the first couple minutes, like f bombs galore. Blood, oh my god, blood. I can't wait. Yeah, so it, it, there's a novelty factor to that, but it's more than just like the novelty of oh wow, he's saying fuck a lot. It's actually like. It feels stripped down. There's like, like it, a rawness. There is. There's a. Uh, there's definitely a rawness compared, certainly compared to the other X Men films. And I feel like that's what they wanted to do with Wolverine for a long time. They've been time. talking that game yeah, for a while, right? Yeah, they wanted to get to the like rawness of this character, but it's never. Well, quite what they what they there. say, if, uh, what I heard uh, is that um, Hugh uh, Jackman actually cut his. You don't need to say his last name. We know exactly <laughs> who you're talking um, about. Hugh uh, cut uh, his price down just to make the film, like so that they could do it like the way they wanted to do of it. Of course, he did. But, but I mean. Of course he did because also he's like done it so much and like he wants to go out on his own terms and make the movie he's been kind of promising for I'm years. Like getting a little it looked, it looked really good. So I'm not going to spoil anything but you know like if you've seen the trailer, you know that Patrick Stewart's in it. You know that um, there's a young girl that f- factors into the plot. Um, it definitely feels kind of like a – Not ro- the girl from Stranger Things. No. Because <laughs> well, I thought it was the first three times I, I watched I, understandable. the trailer. Um, but it feels kind of like a road movie. Uh, anyway, I, I couldn't be more excited about it. Uh, director James Mangold is back for this one and hopefully we'll have him and or Hugh on the podcast when, when the time is right. Uh, so yeah, a lot of cool stuff going on in movies. All the good trailers are coming out for next summer's movie. So yeah. You've had a good week. It's good stuff. In, in um, the cinema. Cinema. So okay. So this week's guest is a, is a, a important and a big one. I was excited to bring him in. Uh, Emil Hirsch is the guest, and you of course know Emil from uh, Into the Wild mm. and Speed Racer and Words of Dogtown and, and tons of great movies. Um, he's I think he's just like thirty one, but he's he's packed a lot into his career, and he's somebody that um, you know I've covered and talked to over the years. He's always been game to do you know fun stupid bits with me, and uh, he's just been, been a guy that I've really enjoyed hanging out with over the years. Um, this conversation is about uh, The Autopsy of Jane Doe. It is a new film that opens December 21st. Uh, it's going to be available on VOD as well. It's kind of a horror thriller, him and the great Brian Cox. Um, they are morticians and uh, a father-son mor- uh, mortician duo, and um, they encounter um, some mystery in the mortuary. Mm. It's uh, it, it's a cool little genre flick that's been getting great reviews from that kind of crowd. So if you're into that kind of thing, um, you're going to love this one, Autopsy of Jane Doe. Check that out soon. Uh, also worth noting, that this and this was not part of the agenda certainly of this conversation, but – whether you know it or not, Emil Hirsch has not done an interview really in about two years. And that's uh, unfortunately because there was a, an unfortunate incident almost two years ago at Sundance um, where Emil 
uh, you know, got into an altercation. I mean, he he was convicted of a, of a crime of a misdemeanor assault. He pled guilty to that. He went to jail for some time, did some community service, et cetera. Um, and you know, there, you can read up on it online for the nitty gritty details. It, it, suffice it to say, it was not a, a good situation, and he made some serious mistakes that he, he has paid the costs for. Um, and he hasn't talked about it since then. And this interview, um, whether by circumstance of the timing of it um, or his comfort with me or whatever, he decided to open up uh, quite a bit about where he's at and the um, the consequences of that incident, which were alcohol related. Uh, he talks about. Um, you know, going into rehab. And I mean, the good news about this unfortunate uh, event is that he is clearly in a much better place and he sounds great and has seems to, he talks about going through rehab and kind of doing the, the things to get his life in order um, and sounds like he's in, in, uh, in a good place as a, as a dad. He's a father now um, and as a, a guy just trying to, you know, live his life the correct way. So wanted to give some context to that discussion, which comes a little bit later on in the interview. Um, it, it, it is, for the most part, a light conversation until we get to kind of this dark stuff. But, um, but even, even in that section of the interview, um, I think uh, it's, it's an illuminating um, a look at an actor and, and, a, and a guy, a young man who um, you know, had some demons he had to deal with. And uh, thankfully, he has. So thankful that Emil felt comfortable enough to talk about that kind of stuff with us here today. Uh, and I hope you guys enjoy uh, this funny and serious conversation in equal measures. Uh, that's my spiel for today. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with this talented young actor. Uh, please enjoy. Oh, and just a note, the first uh, uh, moments of this conversation, you're going to hear a meal um, chowing down on a Snickers bar. Ooh. Just so you know. That's an exclusive for happy sake. I love listeners. that kind of detail. So let's join uh, me and Emil, Emil uh, mid Snickers bar uh, for this conversation about the autopsy of Jane Doe. Enjoy. Uh, if you're just joining us, you're hearing Emil Hirsch eat a Snickers bar. Well, does, mm. does it always satisfy? Is it true? Is the marketing true, Emil? It's pretty satisfying right now. I'm not going to lie. Is it your? Is it your always your your go-to candy bar of choice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a what? It's like a great shot of energy in the morning. <laughs> Hold on, let me watch it down with some black coffee. Okay, good. Yeah. For those of you that want to be big Hollywood movie stars and you want the perfect body, this is what Emil has done. He has black coffee and a Snickers bar. That's how I lost all the waiting into the wild. <laughs> we all wanted to know the secret. Here it is. Finally revealed. Um, as you scarf down your coffee and get a little caffeine jolt, uh, it's good to see you, man. It's been a while. It's great to see you, too. Uh, we've got a lot going on. We're going to talk about the uh, autopsy of Jane Doe, a cool new flick with you and the great Brian Cox. I mean. Cox. Is His that what you call him? Do you, just, do you just call him Cox? No, no. I usually call him Brian. <laughs> but, His last name is Cox. Yeah, I mean, that's documented. It's not like something we're making fun of. C-O-X, though. True. True. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a fact, guys. It's just a technical. Yeah, I mean, we don't want to, like, parse it out. But um, you are uh, – you're many things. You're a great actor. You're a great uh, uh, father by all accounts of the photos that you post. You clearly are enjoying that part of your life. And you're a master tweeter. You're a master of social <laughs> media, Emil. What's, it, what's, the, um, what's, what's your tactic? What's your approach to social media? Because my, my sense is you like a good hashtag. You like a good pun. Yeah. I mean I think uh, it's pro- – I mean it's, it's sort of one of those things where it's not – I don't think it actually does – like any good like for me or whatever it's not like it's not like a career thing right where it's like oh you're gonna help your career by 
you know, writing some absurd puns or something. It doesn't really work like that. But, you know, I'm I'm a product of, like, Gary Larson and, and um, Bill Watterson, like Calvin and Hobbes and The Far Side. And I grew up with reading those comics nonstop. And so that single panel kind of sense of humor and puns and comedy is just something that I really, I really like and I have fun with. And it's sort of a, just a fun, creative game. And if you, like, even on Twitter now, like, if you look at a lot of the, like, sort of things that are like trending it's like word games so it's like people really do enjoy it it's not just me you know it's like they're like some of the top things so I think it's just a fun it's just word games you know I think it's just a way to kind of stay creative I think there are different ways to go about it right I mean I think of what we just had on the podcast one of your contemporaries Shia Shia goes at it a much different way on Twitter it's a little more esoteric a little like I don't know what he's trying to say but it seems meaningful and profound does he actually tweet those out himself do you think think it's the collective his group I I mean I don't know I don't know know. I should have asked him that damn it yeah He's awesome. He's the best. Yeah, he's, I, a, he's awesome. Did you guys like grow up together? Did, were you were you friendly in like the acting circuit? Because you're we about the same age. We didn't actually know each other until like our early twenties or got something. It. But um, we kind of we got to know each other, and uh, he's just I really appreciate him. We used to read actually. We used to read that play Orphans in okay. my place in Venice Beach. Wait, was that the one he was going to do on Broadway? Yeah, it was the one. That was that the one was that was supposed one. to be the album. It was album that one. Thing. We read it a bunch of times, like me and him. Oh, and my then, God. And then, uh, yeah, he's he's awesome. He really is. I mean, I, yeah, I think he gets a bad rap, but I think folks that, if you haven't listened to the podcast, check it out, because I think he's somebody that, if you hear a full conversation with him, you realize, like, he's legit. Like, he goes, like, he takes the art seriously, and this is not, like, a game to him. And uh, I, I always find him really uh, refreshing to talk to. As I do you, sir. Um, (laughs) So talk to me a little bit about – since we have some time and we've never really had a chance to have kind of like one of these kind of career-ish conversations, I do want to go into background a little bit if that's cool. Yeah. So so growing up, um, it seems like you got into acting. uh, The first gigs were TV when you were like what, 12, 13, something like that? that Yeah, well, even earlier, really like 10. Oh, wow. So I saw saw my first kind of movies that made me want to be an actor when I was like around six. It was like Home Alone. I was like, I want to be Kevin McCallister start hitting the freaking robbers with paint buckets. That sounds real good career <laughs> choice. And um, and so, you know, I had this really big interest. People always ask me, did your, did your parents chain you to the car and make you audition? I, was, I, I really was like all about it. Yeah. I was like all about trying to get into movies. Probably annoyingly so. And was it just about because you were obsessed with the movies you saw and you're like, I, if, like, I think they were just so they were like these magical things. Yeah, there's like this world of fun. And I didn't realize then how tedious making movies could be. <laughs> so it's like you watch Home Alone. You're like making it must have just been like a longer version of Home Alone. I you just know? get to hit yeah, Joe Pesci with a frying pan yeah, every day. <laughs> you have no idea what it actually is like the like ridiculous tedium. Right. Uh, there's there's this one quote. I think it was like Christopher Hitchens. He's like, some people that have never been on a film set don't realize what a thundering bore it really can be. <laughs> it really and can be. It really can be. People always go like, why is James Franco working on like 50 different projects at once? Why is he like reading between takes? I'm like, have you ever been on a film set? Yeah, the ratio of downtime it's, to actual yeah, work. And it's not like sitting around your house where you're just totally content to sit around and you're like, oh man, isn't it great that I'm doing nothing? When you're in a work environment, and suddenly you're doing nothing. It's like the. It's like for some reason, while you're on the clock working, doing nothing is not the same as doing nothing when you're not working. Right. Where it's like pleasurable. 
when you're not working, you're just not enjoying working. Well, because, yeah, and you also have in the back of the uh, of your mind, oh, I need to get back into that character in either an hour or three hours whenever they see fit to actually get the, yeah. the next take ready. Maybe that's why Daniel Day-Lewis just stays in character all day. He's like, I was just too bold. <laughs> in fact, I was just very bold. I, so I decided. <laughs> I have an exclusive on Daniel Day-Lewis. I saw him walking into a, a sporting goods store a couple weeks ago. So I think he is training to be a, a guy that buys things at a sporting goods store in his yeah. next movie. Yeah, just like a Black Friday shopper. Yeah, like, I mean, it's going to be... Playing a Black Friday shopper. <laughs> very so, beautiful. You're listening to Happy, Sad, Confused. We'll be right back after this. The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE. It's electrified. Boogie, woogie, woogie. So you can boogie, woogie, woogie into the forest. Boogie. Boogie, woogie, woogie through the mud. Or boogie woogie woogie to work, where you boogie woogie woogie down the hall to your boss's office to tell him you quit. Then you boogie woogie woogie to the elevator as he boogie woogie woogies after you, begging, please take me with you. The electrified Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE. Learn more at Jeep.com. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. So what do you do on your downtime on a film set now? How do you how do you cope with the madness and the downtime? Um, well, it kind of depends, you know. Uh, now, like I I did start to kind of read a little bit more and uh, uh, you know teaching myself how to read that was a big thing. <laughs> it was a big hurdle to get. <laughs> that, that was the first step, and you know uh, lately uh, I did a film with J.K. Simmons recently called uh, I think they just re- excuse me just retitled it mm-hmm. All Nighter. And uh, I play a, like a hipster musician in that. So in that particular circumstance, uh, I was like, you know, making songs and like nice. singing them. And is, is there a concern when you have like downtime, especially on the bigger films of like, is it hard to get back into the character after like six hours of waiting in a trailer or at this point is? I mean, I think sometimes, yeah, like you'll be like a little bit out of step and then, you know, you'll maybe do a take or two and you'll kind of yeah. find it a little bit. Have you ever done theater? I did theater like that was the first thing I ever did when I was a kid. I did like summer camp theater where we put on Shakespeare, Midsummer Night's Dream, two summers in a row. That was like my at the age of what? What are we talking about? I was like eight and nine. That must have been a good production. Yeah, and it was fun, and you got to like make your own costume. And I was like had this ridiculous Oberon fairy costume that I'd like cobbled together from like you know things in my closet. Right. It was great because it was at this place called the Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, which is in Topanga Canyon. Okay. Which is like this nature canyon. So it was like this awesome way to be introduced to acting where it's like the opposite of like a cloistered set. Right. A a cold medicinal studio setting. Oh God, that's a great word to describe it. Especially (laughs) when you're like on ER. I told, Which I was. You guest started in ER. Was that one of the first gigs? No, I was like, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, yeah, I was like fourteen. That must have been a big deal because that was probably at ER also at the height of its superpowers. I think it maybe. was like just after Clooney left. So, it was so like, it was... <laughs> <laughs> you can still meet Anthony Edwards. I mean, that's cool, but where's George? Yeah. Where's Sherry yeah. Stringfield? Yeah. Um. So okay. So you're. You're, you're getting into it. You're, you're obsessed with Kevin McAllister. You start to go on auditions, and is there immediate? Are there immediate gigs that happen as a kid? I mean, there how quickly like, did it happen? There were like little immediate gigs that sort of happened. So I'd get like a little voiceover for like the Chicago Field Museum, or I got like a little guest start on a TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't actually start getting kind of the bigger kind of things. I didn't work on a film um, until I was 15, and that was and that was the Dangerous Lives of Alter Boys. Yep. 
Um, and that was, you know, so I'd kind of been working for about five years on a lot of little things. And then I had this kind of opportunity yeah. to do this film. And Did that feel at the time, even at that young age, like a big leap? I mean, suddenly you're working with Joey Foster's in that film. So that's got to feel like, okay, there's a, a rub of, of real movie starness to this. Yeah, yeah. No, it was it was wild. I mean, it was like it, I, I definitely felt, um, you know, a big sense of responsibility and excitement and it's interesting, you know, looking back on some of the earlier films I did, you know, being like a teenager, it's a lot of like pressure to like kind of be under like a film set and you like have to work and you have to be somewhere on time. And yeah. it's like, it's, it's tough enough for adults to do that, let alone yeah, a teenager. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting. So did that teach you like a level of responsibility or did it not, it did, did you kind of I keep that at bay for as long as possible? Yeah, well, you know, uh, I think that you certainly like learn how to, you know, handle certain types of pressure over time. Yeah. And who were your, cause I mean, we're going to get to some of the films also that like you were in a bunch of cool films that had really cool ensembles of young people like yourself in the same age bracket, whether that's uh, Alter Boys or it's uh, Alpha Dog, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, like, did you have contemporaries that you kind of befriended early on in the process that you stuck with, that have stuck with you through the years um, or that you were going on auditions repeatedly with or something or no? Not particularly. You know, it was more like the older actors that I'd worked with, you know, like Sean Penn, right. um, you know, and uh, Victor Rousseau I'm still tight with from Dogtown, John mm-hmm. Robinson, Michael Angarano. Those guys are, are great. It. You know, Ben Foster, sure. Chris Marquette, Paul Dano, yeah. Jesse Eisenberg. There's a lot of them. They're awesome. And, and to so talk to me a little bit about where so in in the course of something like Alter Boys and then uh, Emperor's Club with Kevin Klein, oh, yeah, but, Karen Culkin on Alter Boys too, sure, great guy, sure. Um, so and then Girl Next Door happens somewhere in there, yeah, and that's that's a, it's a shift because that's like that's kind of mainstream, like kind of classic John Hughes of its time, yeah, yeah, and probably exceeded almost everybody's expectations. I remember at the time it was like this is wait this is actually a really good movie. Yeah, well, it was Girl Next Door was actually kind of a weird thing because it was like I guess it tested really well, mm-hmm. and then it came out. And it just it didn't do it. It bombed. Yeah, I mean, it was like a massive bomb. <laughs> and you know, I mean, uh, since then it sort of gained a following uh, on DVD or sort of word of mouth or whatnot. Well, it's a, it's a legit good movie. It's yeah, not, I mean, it, it's it's be- I mean, it's better than like you might think. Or something. Exactly on the on the on the curve of that kind of movie, you're you're geared to for disappointment. And right. That was a sweet movie. Yeah. Um, you and uh, and the crazy Tim Oliphant and Alicia Cuthbert, who's been on this podcast. It was yeah, a good group. Um, so talk to me about so Lords of Dogtown yeah is a big one um, talking about these great ensembles did you like for instance like Heath was a, a few years older than you yeah was he I, someone you looked up to and, so much yeah. so much that was such a that was so devastating what happened and I actually just recently did an interview for they're making a documentary about him oh, so nice. they were asking me some questions about what it was like working with him and he was just such a creative uh, inventive guy he was he was really something special. And he was a guy who he didn't really take it too seriously so he could be really playful mm-hmm. and kind of snap in and out of things. But, you know, he also did really, you know, want to do great work. So it wasn't like he was blowing it off and being blasé. He was just sort of like being available to have fun. And you could tell – you can also tell by the kind of choices that someone is making early in their career where he's working with someone like Terry Gilliam. And then when he finally gets that shot, sadly, at the end in like this mainstream movie, like what he did with that character, like yeah. he just went for broke and like took chances. And yeah, he was so daring. 
it's so tragic. Yeah, that's one of those that, so that will never get less. He was, uh, yeah, he was, he was, and and you know, uh, Lord's Dogtown was an amazing experience for me. You know, getting to meet the Jay Adams skate legendary skateboarder that I portrayed, and flying to Hawaii and hanging out uh, with Brock Little, the big wave surfer who unfortunately passed away earlier mm-hmm. uh, this year, I believe, and um, you know getting to kind of into that world of those hardcore skateboarders. And Jay was a really wild guy. And Jay also passed away, too. Yeah. Um, it's a dog town. Yeah, these bunch of people passed away. Did, did, did you, do you still skate at all? I still, like, have a board always <laughs> with me everywhere at all times. Really? But, like, I don't get on it very often. Right. Like, the I, opportunity doesn't come Yeah, up. but I have, like, a son now, and he's, like, three. And I'm like, I don't want to, like, break my leg right so you don't want to set a bad precedent it's hard to like carry your son around with a broken leg right no you got to be practical at a certain point you must be practical and put away your toys boy <laughs> is that how you talk to your son no that's what i would talk to myself oh i see like my toys being my skateboard <laughs> that's my inner conscience like piping up in a butler outfit got it got you it must come to the responsibility now that you're an adult you must act proper on a podcast with josh horowitz yes sir <laughs> very proper podcasting <laughs> Is podcasting that, etiquette. Podcasting <laughs> is just new enough to where there's actually no etiquette. Have you uh, have you ever podcasted before? Is this your podcast debut? I think. I don't want to overstate things, maybe, but this yeah. might be. It's like oh my, yeah. it last felt, time I like did these interviews. Like I don't think the technology existed. <laughs> it's been kind of a while. I don't want to make this more of a momentous event than it already is. But this feels. Can you feel the ground shaking beneath your of feet, Mister Horowitz? <laughs> um, Alpha Dog. What are your memories of Alpha Dog? Um, it was wild, man. Nick Cassavetes is a really talented director who kind of pushes his actors. He's like that kind of director where he's like just gets in their heads and like has them just going wild. He had us all working out and training nonstop. And that was with Timberlake and Ben Foster and just a really interesting group of people. Amanda Seyfried was in that film. Right. Uh, really, uh, Anton Yelchin. Oh God, at least who was the best part about that movie. Such a sweet guy, right? And, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, just... You know, it's so it's so tragic. So, in something like we'll talk about something working like with a director like Nick Cassavetes versus other folks. Like, is there a kind of director that you found over the years that you respond to a kind of experience that you're going after on a film set, or are you kind of open to everything at this point? I'm what? pretty open to everything. Um, I you know I I have fun with directors who are like, let's just do one take, and then I have fun with directors who are like. Let's just do like twenty and actually make something good. And I'm like, man, I see the I see the reasoning in both arguments. Right. And the fun thing about movies is there's really no correct answer. Right. And where and where does someone like so sequentially looking at your career, someone like Sean fit in in terms of his approach? Sean, Sean Tan, was actually kind of a funny hybrid where because he's worked with both of those directors, you know, he's worked with Fincher and he's worked with like friggin' Gus Van Sant, you right. know. So he he would be someone who, on certain moments, at certain scenes, he would do a lot of takes. Yeah. But then there were other scenes where it was like suddenly he was Clint Eastwooding it, and he was just like, <laughs> "That was a great take. Move on." So I mean, what always strikes me in in talking to you now and, and over the years is clearly you. I mean, the Kevin McAllister clause. You love movies. Like you grew up with this stuff, and you reference other filmmakers and stuff. Are are you the kind of guy that's like? When's my Eastwood moment? When's my Fincher moment? Like you have that kind of internal list. There are those people that you're trying to – you want to get to. I actually don't really have the list yeah. because I just wouldn't want to be disappointed. It's later fruitless when, kind of. Yeah, yeah I mean yeah, it's yeah. like – it's like yeah, and then I've got my Steven Spielberg movie. You know, <laughs> I, I don't like – I'm not – I don't really keep the like lists like that because 
what I learned about making movies so far is like you never really know what kind of jobs are going to come along sure. and what opportunities might present themselves. And you just sort of got to be open because it's like it's usually not what you expect. I mean you've had some amazing opportunities. I mean what you mentioned someone like Gus Van Sant or the Wachowskis which very you know haven't made that many films. That being said, is there like one that haunts you like one that got away one part that you were like oh my this this is the this is the experience that I want whether the movie became a big hit or not. I, you- I loved the script for The Social Network and I auditioned for that. Yeah. And I thought that was awesome and you know I just wasn't good enough. Stop. That's, that's, <laughs> that's just, not, that's I was true, not Emil. talented no, enough. That's, I wasn't good enough. I won't listen to this. I wasn't just right for the, you know, whatever. I was, I, to be honest, to be fair to myself, to be my own agent for a second, I wasn't really right for any of those parts anyway. Did I you, wasn't enough of a dork. Or, <laughs> you're too damn cool. <laughs> you're just too cool. <laughs> <laughs> Did you audition for Fincher? No. No, I didn't even get I, no, he's, he's like, yeah, no, he's like, no, he's like, it's like I'm not even gonna walk in the room. He's not yeah. good enough for Thanks me. Thanks for turning the screw, Josh. No, <laughs> no, I actually auditioned for Lorraine Mayfield, his casting director, who I'd worked with on the Dangerous Lives of Walter Boys. She was Full the one circle. who gave me go. my first, my first gig. She's amazing. So, um, and Into the Wild, life changing. I would think in every way, both from a career standpoint and just a life experience. Yeah, still. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that remains sort of the kind of just super seminal experience that I've had making a film in, in many ways. Just be, be, not only due to the kind of the physical toll and, and, and kind of experience that my body went with just with the weight loss and the working out and the adventure and the traveling, but also, you know, the amount of time that it was because it was like several months of prep and then yeah. it was a really long shoot for that type of movie. It was like seven months shoot. And, and working with Sean just uh, probably a year or two later uh, on Milk, what, did it feel like a much different kind of experience with him, obviously, as an actor versus a Yeah, director? I mean, he was he was like way less uh, hands-on as an actor. He's just like kind of just like chilling, quiet. He, tr- he trusts and he someone just, like, like us, I'm goes sure. goes right into it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And as, an, as a director, he's much more interactive. Um, probably one of the first times I spoke to you was Into the Wild and then Speed Racer. And Speed Racer, which, of course, has its ardent fans, and it, it does hold up. It's a pretty cool movie, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's weird how that movie over the years has become, like, a bit of, like, a fanboy cult favorite. Well, I think – and I have this conversation a lot with people. Like, any films that go for it and, – and they have a couple like this. Like, Cloud Atlas, for instance, I loved their, their, their take on that. I just like audacious filmmakers that kind of, like, go for it. And clearly Speed Racer, both in kind of tone and just the, the treatment of it, was um, – was different to say the least. Maybe most audiences weren't ready for that at the time or what? Yeah, I mean it was – even for even for the Wachowskis, it was a bold film. I mean if you think about too that everyone expected them to take that Matrix kind of dark black and right. green color aesthetic and just apply it to Speed Racer and to just totally change the aesthetic of Speed Racer – the fact that they like went through with creating the new colorful aesthetic for Speed Racer is amazing because you know everyone was telling them not to. Everyone was being like, just go with what we know, yeah. what we know works for you guys. Just stay in your wheelhouse. And the fact that they refused to is kind of amazing because they really did take a huge risk. And you know, when the movie came out and it bombed, I mean, you see why, yeah. you know, the executives are like, we told you so. <laughs> Just make more of the same. More of the same. Yeah, but you know, they sort of get the last laugh when, you know, 10 years later people are really yeah. digging the movie. W- at what point did you realize it wasn't going to resonate in terms of a commercial? Like did you have an idea making it or as the reviews came out or just, was that not until it came out that it, it turned from like this is going to be the biggest thing ever to uh, 
don't know. I think when the trailer dropped and I like saw some of the comments online where people were just like just seeming to just reject it, right? Just flat out like it was like the blood type. It's not. It's not working. <laughs> you know that. That's when I was like, ooh. Hmm. This is Happy Sad Confused. We'll be right back after this. Uh, I think one of the last times I saw you was um, maybe at the premiere for Prince Avalanche, which is a oh, great yeah. movie. David yeah. Gordon Green, love that guy. You and Mr. Rudd. Um, I mean, you've, you've even in recent years, you've been working with some cool, like diverse kind of filmmakers. Uh, William Friedkin, yeah, um, who seems like the like the consummate storyteller. I don't know how he actually makes a film on set because I feel like every story he has is thirty <laughs> minutes story. long. I know it's right? amazing. Yeah, he's <laughs> his memory is, is so probing and deep, and he's just like just seems to remember everything. And then something like uh, – well, I, I, I also saw you for Lone Survivor. We had a fun on that one um, and that kind of – that group of guys. Yeah. Um, do you remember the shoot we did, that silly yeah, shoot? Yeah, that was so much fun with Wahlberg. It was like a Wahlberg Christmas or something. It was a Wahlberg Christmas special. I watched it the other day. It holds up. It's so weird. <laughs> if you guys want to go down the rabbit hole of strange collaborations between Emil and I, yeah. check out the Mark Wahlberg Holiday Spectacular from 2013. Yeah, you could it, do a lot worse. It was it was pretty wild. There's mistletoe involved. We really went for it. You certainly went for it. We all went for it. Yeah, I feel like Taylor was like, "How the hell did I get here?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then by the end, he was like nibbling my hat, so it was fine. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, so okay, so let's talk a little bit about this this uh, current film uh, a little bit more because it, it, it's it's a cool piece of work. We were talking as you walked in. I think it de- did it debut at Fantastic Fest. Is that uh, where it's... it debuted in Toronto, oh, where okay. it actually got the runner up to the Audience Award Amazing. for Midnight Madness. So talk to me a little bit about this is basically it's it's almost a two-hander. I mean there's well it's kind of a three-hander because there's another yeah. there's a woman, there's a Jane Doe in the room. Um but it's you and Brian Cox, very confined space, very cool filmmaker. Um talk to me a little bit about what was super intriguing about this one and what uh, resonated with you for autopsy. Um I just I thought it was like a really cool Sherlock Holmes kind of mystery where these it's like it's not like a normal horror where it's just cheap scares. It's like we're building the sense of dread and these guys are morgue workers who are assigned to find this woman's cause of death in a dark and stormy night yeah and as they go deeper and deeper into their process of the autopsy more and more clues reveal themselves kind of leading to a the horrific kind of conclusion and if you like kind of csi or sherlock holmes that type of uh detectives uh, on the on the case, so to speak, this is this really satisfies that in a big way. Uh, and we were saying it seems like it's it's also like checking the box for like horror thriller audiences, genre yeah. audiences especially, right? Yeah. Um, maybe not so much for the squeamish. Are you squeamish? Are you a squeamish guy? Um, you know, I'm I'm not super squeamish to be honest. When I was preparing for the part, I. Went on my 30th birthday, actually. It's kind of a strange thing to do on your birthday. But I went to the Los Angeles County Morgue. What? Yeah. What's that like? I guess the producers had a connection of a guy there. <laughs> I know a guy. guy. Hey, me. <laughs> they're like, yeah, we know this guy. He runs it. This guy, Craig Harvey. So I went and uh, I had to fill out all these forms, which are like, if you get Ebola, we're not going to, you know, you're not going to sue us. And I went from like never having like seen a dead body to, before to like, seen like 400 or something like that some crazy huge number i mean it was like so traumatizing did it help or was it one of those things where like i can see in theory why it would help i mean it was it definitely um i think it contributed to the like disturbed air that the character has in the movie like the character he's sort of a regular guy but then he seems just a little downbeat yes and i think that the little downbeat quality is 
kind of informed by some of those experiences. And what do you uh, take away from spending however many weeks you were with Brian Cox, who's just a legend? He's just so cool. He's just a strong guy who is super talented and fun and funny and has so many so many experiences to share. And uh, but also like a great theater actor mm-hmm. too. You know, he's had a huge career on the stage as well. And you just. It was nice to have like a scene partner to where I just I always knew he'd be there for me. Yeah. You know? In a certain sense it's like the doctor thing where it's like scalpel and you throw your hand out. Right. Like like I always put the scalpel in his hand and his hand was always there asking for the scalpel. Right. I'm not the guy asking for the scalpel with <laughs> Brian Cox. I'm the guy handing it to him. <laughs> Over to you, Brian. <laughs> and when did you shoot this? How long has this been? Uh that this was like uh like a year and a half ago. Got it. So I mean and I and I want to mention one thing and I don't want to belabor this, but like this is the first time you've done interviews in, mm-hmm. in a while cuz yeah. I mean there was an unfortunate incident obviously at Sundance mm-hmm. a couple years ago. We're not going to go into the details of everything, but I'm sure you have some regrets over the stuff that happened. I mean, what what do you take away from that which which it seems like you tell me did it change the course of your personal or professional life going through an incident like that? Absolutely, you know, I'm I'm still uh just so sorry for what happened and you know, uh, still just shocked even that that it happened and also grateful in a way that you know, it um gave me an opportunity to make my life a lot better. Right. And to um, you know, do some of the things that helped me in finding, um, you know, ways of just clarity. And, and you know, I went to like rehab right. and, and was able to really clean that side of myself up and just discovering that, you know, problems with like alcohol and binging on alcohol and other drugs, um, you know, these are these are problems that I was able to, you know, see a lot of people face and maybe yeah. I didn't quite um, realize that before or identify that in that way. And, um, just, just getting that handled in my life, just improved my life in so many ways. And as, as difficult as the, um, you know, and unfortunate as that whole thing was, um, I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to really move forward and make my, my improve my life for my son. I was going to say, especially th- as you yeah. just, you're just and, you becoming know, a dad. A, yeah. a three-year-old son, and it's like I'm, so, I'm just so much more present in there for him. Yeah. And that means so much to me. And the quality of, like, just days and not waking up hungover and not not knowing what happened or something like that. Right. And, and, you know the the stuff is the stuff is strong, and I think a lot of people, you know, that I've I've talked to a lot of people, and you know, the problems. Uh, there's a there's a lot of people that struggle with those problems of uh, of addiction, and you know, I mean, if I could, if anything positive could sort of come of it, it would just be like people yeah. just getting a little bit more awareness because sometimes you need to like hear somebody say something about it, or you know, be like, this is this is not like your life doesn't have to be this way. Right. Like you don't, you don't, you don't have to like be like, oh yeah, everyone's, everyone's going out and drinking and I have to too, because that's just the way it is. Yeah. And then, but I'm different. Why do I drink so much more than everybody else? Why does it get to that place? And then I just have to like deal with those consequences like that. You know, do, do you blame any of that on the circumstance of like your career and like where you grew up and, and stuff like that? Or would, would this kind of stuff you think have happened anyway? For I mean, you? It, it, I don't know. You know, that's that's sort of a chicken or the egg yeah. kind of question. And I think that when I, you know, being being in you know rehab and then jail afterwards, 
um, you know, it, I was able to see that it <laughs> didn't matter if you were an actor sure. or if you were a bar hand or whatever, you know, there, a lot of people would, um, would have kind of problems uh, in that, in that yeah. world. You know, it kind of, it's like sort of an equalizer, you could say. I'm sure. And landing in, it, like, what's the wake-up call moment? Is it, like, when you find yourself in, in jail and you're like, holy shit, like, the, okay, it's come to this and I don't even remember what happened? I mean, that's, that's a scary place for any person to be yeah, in. I mean, I mean, a lot of people, when they, you know, they think about, you know, blackouts, a lot of the, like, the, the craziness is like, oh, well, what, what, if I, what, what happened, you yeah. know? And, and when something actually happens, that's, that's just, like— it's just it's it's horrible. Well, I'm happy you're in a better place, man. Because I'm, you know, you. Uh, no, and, I and I really appreciate that, and and you know, it's it's it means a lot for me to be able to sit here and to like really know how much more improved that I've been able to like make yeah. my life, and not just for you know myself, but also for my son and the rest of my family and my friends. It's you know? huge. It's huge, and I appreciate and you it's being the kind as of, open as you are. And yeah. it's the kind of thing too, where you know, like I put I put. I put friends and family and people like that, I put them first in my life yeah. and I'm able to do that so much more now. And, and and much less on the priority scale, I think, when we're talking about these kind of real issues, like this is real life we're talking about, is is, is the career stuff. But do you feel like this has reoriented where you're at on your with your career in terms of what you're looking for? I mean, wh- how do you feel in terms of like the opportunities you have or, or has – have you changed sort of your approach to what you're looking for? Is that or is that stayed steady? I mean, I think that the way that I choose projects or campaign for projects or however work comes about, I feel like it's always kind of been an organic process. Yeah. And so hard to be in control of that kind of stuff. And so, you know, it's for me, it's just if something lines up in the right way, that's that to me is what's exciting and, and that that feeling of being able to do it. And I, I truly love acting and and kind of the I feel like when I found that kind of clarity um it really improved the quality of sure uh you know the my work and also the experience of making films it was just it was so much more fun yeah. and and I realized too like the best ex- some of the best experiences I've ever had were, you know, totally clear, you know? And that was, like, into the wild, you know what I mean? Like, like I didn't have you a drink on Into the Wild. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wasn't... There was there was one night on Into the Wild, actually, where uh, I had one drink, uh, and then the crew member who gave it to me, like, freaked out right after he gave it to me. He's like, don't tell anybody. And I'm pretty sure that the dude dosed me with, like, MDMA. Are you kidding Yeah, me? because I was, like freaking out and like the ad had to like literally sit and talk to me like all night and this was on the river of the colorado like the colorado river yeah like this is like on the riverbank all night where we're like tenting out and i'm like literally like like freaking because i didn't know what was going on yeah and what do you do how do you recover from that so but i knew it was the guy i was like it was that guy it was that thing you gave me (laughs) i know there was something in there and uh and then i didn't sleep at all and then in the morning that was the second day I had to do the rapids. So I'm like literally getting out of this friggin' being dosed, getting into this kayak, which is a sea kayak. It's not even meant for rapids. And I'm getting in it, and Sean looks at me, he's like, you good to go again, buddy? And I was like, yeah. Hey. All right, here we go. And I went, and I just got absolutely. Oh, no. And, I, and the first day I did the rapids, I made it all, all three times. But then the second day, I just got 
pummeled. <laughs> I mean, I got thrown around and I realized that the life jacket they put me in was just like a wardrobe life jacket to look cool. Oh, and yeah. it didn't actually work. And I just gulped <laughs> in all this air. I mean, all this water. You're leading a charmed life that we're, I'm happy you're still sitting here with us. Yeah, yeah. The good news is that we have now 100% clarity, Emil, for future projects. No, yeah. no excuses anymore. It's right. all it's all good. And um, and you've got a lot going on, right? I mean, I did did I see also your your Are you writing a bit? Are you trying to develop some of your own stuff? Or what yeah, kind of- yeah. I've 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 actually um, I've written a bunch of scripts over the years, and I kind of you know I play with them sometimes, and I'll muse about making one of them, but. Again, just because it's my project, I'm not going to give it any more credence than I would another script. So Mm -hmm. it's like until I get that feeling of like, oh, I really am going to make this, I wouldn't make one of them necessarily. Like I'm not going to like play favorites just because it's mine. Sure. Um, And then something that I started to do recently too is I I actually wrote a, a novel. No kidding. Yeah, I've, I'm working on it now. It's not done or anything. It's in the process. But I spent uh, spent a while, and I wrote, uh, yeah, a first draft uh, of a novel, and I'm kind of taking some time, and then I'm going to kind of go back into it. Uh, and it was a lot of fun, and it was probably the most creative experience I've ever had. And, and are you the kind of – because, like, I mean, I, I write. I write my stupid little sketches, et cetera, and I find it both beautiful and torturous at the same time. Are you, but it sounds like – I mean, it sounds like a joyous process for you, and at least in this this novel it was. Yeah, well, I, I think the way that it got done is I sort of got into the habit of just waking up in the morning, having a cup of coffee, sitting in kind of a quiet place and just – going for like two or three hours and then just being done and just repeating that process yeah. every day. You got to be disciplined about it. Yeah. yeah I mean, the just, just the, as long as I was just disciplined about when I did it, I was able to do it. And, nice. um, you know, I, it was just a lot of fun and the process of discovery for it was great. There was this book Stephen King wrote called On Writing. I've read that. That's a great book. It's so good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I just followed all of his advice, like to the T. It works for Stephen. And, and <laughs> I mean, obviously like it's, Stephen King's a genius, so it's a little different. Um, but I had a great time yeah. doing it, and it, I mean, it's something I would recommend anyone to try. It just is, it's just yeah. a really, it's just a satisfying experience. Who knows what'll ever come of it? Right. Maybe I'll, you know, just throw it in the desk when it's done. But in terms of, um, you know, because sometimes like acting, it's like you'll wait for a job or you'll. You, you know, it's like you don't get to just be creative whenever you want necessarily. Exactly. You you're, have at, to, you're at the uh, you whim to, of some other people, other yeah, factors. Yeah, like you have to think about a little bit outside the box. So to be able to find creative outlets, um, you know, outside that and the this the the writing is just something that is just super portable very very doable <laughs> is there it's a, great for a lazy dude like me you right, know you gotta, like, oh man i just have to sit here and move my fingers this is like the minimum movement possible <laughs> minimum movement for maximum output you can still eat your snickers bar with one hand mm-hmm. doodle with the other yeah. You can multitask. So um, no plan for like when that we're going to actually see the light of day. It may never see the light of day or may yeah, like – I mean who knows? who knows? I mean no one's, okay. no one's read one sentence of it. Wow. So, yeah. Okay. But th- that's according to King. You know, he said you, you got to right. write it with the door closed. Right. And then you do the first rewrite and then you can show people eventually. Okay. So I won't probe deeper on the subject matter. But for the next time, maybe you'll you'll give a taste of what's, what's to come in the, the from the mind of Emil Hirsch. Yeah. The deranged, amazing mind of Emil Hirsch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you like Twitter puns, you'll probably <laughs> – if you like comedy, you might like the book. 
Um, I'm so glad that you came by to talk today. I know it's been a, it's been a couple of years since you've done this kind of thing, and um, uh, you know I've always been a fan of yours, always rooting for you, and I appreciate your your honesty about all aspects of your career and life today. It's 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 good to see that you're in a good place, man. Yeah, thank you. And uh, everybody should check out the Autopsy of Jane Doe. Very cool new flick. If you love genre, if you love thrillers, if you love horror, if you love Brian Cox, if you love this man, Emil Hirsch, you can do a lot worse than checking this one out. It's a good one. Uh, thanks, buddy. It's good to see you. Yeah, thank you. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs> this episode of Happy, Sad, Confused was produced by Michael Catano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.